0: Elliot Mahaffey, Bobby Gayhart, and Judy Gayhart. We look forward to welcoming them in as new members in a couple of weeks. Let's bow in prayer before we go to the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, now we come to you as we open your word. We pray that you will oversee everything that is said, that your Holy Spirit will take your word, and press it upon our hearts, convict our hearts, and transform us more and more into the image of our Savior. We pray that if anyone here this morning or listening on the live stream who has not come to the place of accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior for the sense they will do so this morning. And we pray for all of us, Lord, that you were, will work in our hearts, help us to be attentive to the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and we pray this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we'll come back as we were last week, the First John chapter two. If you want to turn there, First John chapter two, we'll be again in verses fifteen through seventeen. We began this last week, and um, as we are looking at this passage this morning, we will particularly uh, look at verse sixteen in which the Apostle John, in this epistle written to churches in Asia Minor, presents the fact of all that is in the world. And as he does, so he lists the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the beautiful pride of life. Let's read the passage, beginning in verse 15, chapter 2 of First John. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, as we look at this passage, of course, it's central, particularly in verse 16, Our minds are drawn to the problem of sin. As he lists there, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, the three categories, large categories of sin, representing the things that are in the world. Now, sin is a reality in the world. It is the universal problem. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 states, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. All have sinned. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, quoting the Psalms, states, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And further on in that same chapter, in verse 23, Paul states, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of a holy God. Sin, then, is the universal problem. There is none good, not one. Only God is inherently righteous, and man falls woefully short of the divine standard of moral perfection. But the gospel reveals that on the basis of faith, and faith alone, on the Lord Jesus Christ alone, God will impute his righteousness to ungodly sinners. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 states, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. All of the realm of created beings has been devastated by the reality of sin because sin rules every heart. It intends to damn every soul to hell. So then we ask the question what is sin? 1 John, the same epistle in chapter 3 and verse four, 4, tells us sin is the transgression of the law, sin is lawlessness. That is to say, sin is any violation of God's law. Sin is unrighteousness, unrighteousness while the law of God affirms what is righteous. So any act, any word, any thought, any motive that violates God's holy, just, and perfect law constitutes sin. Any thought that is not God-honoring, representative of obedience to the word of God, is sin. Proverbs tells us that devising of folly is sin. Any foolish thought is sin. As we consider our text this morning regarding the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, we ask the the question, now, where do these originate? Where do they originate? And then there's a rather straightforward answer, very straightforward answer in the Scripture. If you turn to Mark chapter 7, the Gospel according to Mark chapter 7, there the Lord Jesus had been talking with some Pharisees and disciples were there. And then beginning in verse 14, in Mark chapter 7, speaking of the Lord Jesus, it says that after he called the crowd to him again he began saying to them listen to me all of you and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him but the things which proceed out of out of the man are what defile the man so he called the crowd and in verse 14 together it says and then he began speaking to them saying listen to me all of you and understand that Calling them to something important that he is about to say. And he says, There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. There's nothing outside of you, natural or supernatural, no human being, no demon, no Satan, not the world around you. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. Nothing that comes from the outside constitutes the problem. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. The problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside you. And then he goes on in verse 17, and it states, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. They listened to what he was saying, and they or questioning him and he said to them are you so lacking in understanding also do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it goes not does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated thus he declared all foods clean and he was saying that which proceeds Out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. By the way, among the things that, is list, that are listed there in verse 22, notice three things he mentions, sensuality, coveting, and pride. Those are listed among the things that proceed out of the heart that defiles a man. As we're going to see as we look further into verse 16 of John's epistle, the passage we're in today, those are the three great categories that John mentions in this passage verse 16. I'm going back to Mark. In this text here in Mark chapter 7 the Lord Jesus pointed out the fallen condition of our hearts. The spiritual lesson is made very clear for from within out of the heart of man proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, etc. All these evil things proceed from within from the heart these are the, ones, the things that defile the man. Now, as we consider this passage and the prominence given here to the heart, it's important that we clearly define what the heart is in this context. Now, in defining the heart, we're not talking about the heart as a vital organ, a muscle that pumps blood through throughout the body, certainly, obviously, Neither are we dealing with emotional, romantic, philosophical, or literary definitions of the heart. Those are quite common, but not what it's referring to here. The Bible mentions the heart multiple times throughout. The heart refers to the inner person, the seat of one's mental, emotional, and spiritual being. It really encompasses one's attitudes, affections, priorities, ambitions, desires. The heart is the core of a person's identity. It's the source of all thoughts, words, and actions. In essence, the heart is that spiritual part of us where our thoughts, our emotions, our volition, and our desires dwell. The inner man, the real you, the inside you, the spirit and soul part of you. Now, we as believers should be preoccupied with the heart, the inner man, for the inner man is the eternal part, the spirit, the soul, the real you. The human heart in its natural condition is evil, treacherous, and deceitful. The fall has affected us at the deepest level, and so our mind Our emotions, our desires have been corrupted, have been defiled by sin. And we're blind to just how pervasive the problem is. Our biggest problem is not external, but internal. All of us have a heart problem. In order for a person to be saved, then, the heart must be changed this only happens by the power of god in response to faith. Romans 10:10 10, 10 tells us with the heart one believes unto righteousness we read it a little bit earlier. In his grace god can create a new heart within us. And he promises to revive the heart of the contrite ones, Isaiah 57:15. Now there's the problem. That is where sin originates. The problem is inside of us. It's in you, in your heart. The source of evil is in us. The source of evil is the heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart of a man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the only solution to the problem is that we need a new heart you need a new heart i need a new heart and that is the great promise of God in Ezekiel chapter 36 in that wonderful passage referring to the new covenant beginning in verse 25 there in chapter 36 of Ezekiel states i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean i will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the promise of salvation. You have to be changed on the inside. Paul, in Titus chapter 3, and verses 5 through 7, stated, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a blessed hope for all those who have, in faith, come to Christ. I urge you to do so today if you have not done so. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not on the basis of any external behaviors, any moral or ceremonial behavior, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration, Regeneration, it's a total transformation, a new heart, which is carried out by God in our hearts. We saw last week that the command not to love the world, going back to First John chapter two and verse 15, that command is grounded in three arguments in this passage of verses 15 through 17. First, uh, there's the incompatibility of love for the world and love for the Father. And he states in verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's an incompatibility between loving the world and loving the Father. But then second, we saw also that in verse 16, John states that all that is in the world is not from God. Another reason not to love the world says for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And then thirdly we saw that there's the transience the the transience of the world as contrasted with the eternity of those who do God's will. And that was in verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of, the, of God lives forever. So today we're going to take a little closer look at verse 16, where John states all that is in the world, and then he lists three particular, particular categories of all that is in the world. Now, as we said last week, the world here does not refer to the natural world or to the world of humanity as such. Rather, it refers to a system with its possessions, positions, and pleasures all alienated against God. It is the the system, really, of human existence in its many aspects. It is manifested throughout the world. It is the world of men and women in rebellion against God and therefore it's characterized by all that is in opposition to God. We might call it the world system. It involves the world's values. It involves the world's pleasures, its pastimes, its aspirations. It is the anti-God anti-Christ, anti-Scripture, anti-righteous, deceptive order controlled by Satan. John himself tells us in this first epistle in chapter 5 and verse 19, it says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There we have it, under the control of Satan. The world is synonymous with the kingdom of of darkness it is designed by satan to appeal to the fallen heart and the appeal is made through these three different categories that we see here in 1 john chapter 2 and verse 15 they're described in verse 16 they are the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and very importantly Note this, there is no way to conquer these, humanly speaking. The only conquering of these comes through the saving work of Jesus Christ in the heart of the person. The meaning of all that is in the world here appears in three qualifying descriptions of sin's categories. The world appeals to the lust of the flesh, It appeals to the lust of the eyes and to the boastful pride of life. And it does so because it's made up of sinners who function on that basis. Understanding the serious danger sin poses, so the Apostle Paul here in this passage summarized the ways the world incites sin. Because you notice the description when he says all that is in the world, referring to to the internal desires in the human heart. The things that are both in and of the world are divided so in, in three classes or categories according to the three dominant inclinations of a depraved human nature. And they're stated briefly, but those three designations are of great importance. So let's look at them. First of all, the lust of the flesh. Notice that the first two categories are characterized by the word lust. And we did go into this a little more last week, but lust here means desire, craving, longing. It's the craving of the sinful heart. It's a common word used in the New Testament, and sometimes it means good desires. The context is what you have to look at to see whether its meaning is positive or, or negative. Here, it means the negative cravings Of the sinful heart. Our worldly impulses. The impulses that draw us toward the evil that is around us. The evil outside of us solicits the evil in us. So when it talks about the lust of the flesh, it doesn't refer to only sexual sin, although that certainly is included in it. The lust of the flesh refers to sensual, sensory, bodily appetites. The inordinate craving for everything that pleases either the body or the mind and gives us pleasure distinct from God himself, distinct from God's will. It's the corruption of desires. It's selfish desires of any kind, Sinful desires of any kind. And God is not saying that we can't have desires. There are normal, healthy desires. Nothing wrong with desiring a partner in marriage. But it's sinful to desire a partner outside marriage as established by God. Nothing wrong with desiring to eat, but it's sinful to become a glutton. Nothing wrong with enjoying a good time and having fun, but it it is sinful to be consumed with pleasure and to be irresponsible regarding our duty. Nothing wrong with being comfortable, but it's sinful to allow luxury to become an idol. See, all normal desires can be perverted, and the sinful heart perverts them. The lust of the flesh is the gratification of desires outside of God's limits. Without any regard for what is good and reasonable and righteous, according to God's word. That's the lust of the flesh. It's wanting what you want without regard to what God has to say. So what are these lusts? In chapter 5 of Galatians, in verse 19, there is... A list. The verse uh, states The deeds of the flesh, those are the fruits of the flesh, are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. They're not just acts of immorality, although they're included. It includes idolatry, enmity, jealousy, anger, disputes, envy, etc. Those lusts encompass things relating to or things that consist in the gratification of the senses or the indulgence of the appetites. Anything done to satisfy, satisfy these yearnings that violates the law of God. and the world is made up of these things. That's essentially what the world system is. And the world on the outside, the world system on the outside that, remember, Satan rules, is simply an external projection of the human heart. Those sinful attitudes and actions are primary characteristics. Of the world system and irresistibly appealing to the corruption of the unconverted soul. Secondly, John mentions the lust of the eyes. It's the second thing that he mentions. Here, it's not just uh, what you feel, it's not just those impulses and compulsions that you feel down inside toward self fulfillment against the will of God, but it's also what you see. The instrument here is the eye. Proverbs 20 and 12 states, the seeing eye the Lord has made. Eyes are a wonderful gift from God. Dr. George Marshall is an eye disease researcher from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. He's done a lot of research in the the human eye and listen to what he says about the human eye. Quote, the more I study the human eye, the harder it is to believe that it evolved. Most people see the miracle of sight. I see a miracle of complexity on viewing things at 100,000 times magnification. It is the perfection of this complexity that causes me to balk at evolutionary theory. The retina is probably the most complicated tissue in the body. Millions of nerve cells interconnect in a fantastic number of ways to form a miniature brain. Much of what the photoreception, photoreceptors see is interpreted and processed by the retina long before it enters the brain. Close quote. This simply to describe the wonderful, immense complexity of the human eye, which, as we saw which God has created. What a wonderful gift it is. The eye is a miracle of complexity reflecting the inexhaustible wisdom of God, the glorious majesty of our God. And it is a gift to us. It's a wonderful gift. What a blessing. What a wonderful grace to be able to see the beauty of God's creation and all the wonders of life but the evil heart twists and perverts those things the eyes see. The eyes that God gave us to appreciate the beauty of his creation can become a point of terrible, sinful pursuit. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus himself referred to the lust of the eyes in Matthew 5.28 when He states, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her, in his heart. King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 says he arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. He saw the woman who was walking on his rooftop, and with his eyes, He saw a woman who was another man's wife, and he coveted. He saw and he coveted. And he paid profoundly for that iniquity the rest of his life. At the conquest of Jericho, the Lord commanded the people of Israel not to take any spoils for themselves. Achan violated God's ban. When confronted by Joshua regarding his violation... This was Achan's confession. We see it in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 20. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them. And took them. Achan saw with his eyes. And coveted and took. Violating God's prohibition. And his lust of the eyes. And covetousness. caused Israel's defeat of the battle of Ai. And cost him his life. The psalmist says. In Psalm 119. And verse 37. Turn away my eyes. From looking at vanity. Job made a covenant. In Job 31 and verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Through the lust of the eyes, the world entices to thoughts and actions contrary to God's will. Thus the sinful heart perverts the use of the eyes and draws the person into dissatisfaction, into covetousness, into idolatry. So the lust of the flesh is the allurement that comes from the bodily impulses, the impulses of the mind and the body. And the lust of the eyes is what is the lure of, of the outward appearance, the things that we see, and then our heart the heart responds in covetousness. It's a form of covetousness. And then we have, thirdly, the boastful pride of life. This third component in this list The boastful pride of life, it's the third human element that provides an avenue into the soul for temptation. All of these are categories in which the human heart is tempted. The pride of life can be defined as anything that is of the world, that leads to arrogance, ostentation, pride in self, presumption, and boasting. Now, the essence of the pride of life is anything that exalts us above our station in life and offers the illusion of godlike qualities wherein we boast in arrogance and worldly wisdom. There is a boasting there in those qualities. Instead of living in humility in gratitude to God, the sinner exalts himself and seeks fulfillment in things that glorify the creature rather than the creator. Now this pride is the arrogance that seeks to elevate the self above everyone else. The boastful pride of life is the desire to be better than everybody else, the desire to tell everybody how much better you are, how much you possess, how great you are. It is the desire to exceed everybody else. The boastful pride of life seeks to make your life more important than others. The longing of pride that seeks to exceed everybody. This pride of life expresses itself in many ways. Usually may express itself in ostentatious displays. It may involve a pretentious confidence in one's possessions. In one's resources. Or in the stability of earthly things. Now, the essence of the pride of life is anything that exalts us above our station and offers the illusion of these godlike qualities wherein we boast in arrogance and we boast in worldly wisdom. Now, it induces many to attempt The keeping up of an appearance which they can ill afford, it leads to much hypocrisy and pretends to be, pretending to be and have what is not possessed. It causes people to become the slaves of fashion, to be in bondage to foolish conventions of the world. It's an affection for reputation. It's a lust for power and a love for ostentation. Man is ever prone to be puffed up by the conceit of his own excellence. His strength, beauty, wisdom, talents, graces, achievements, possessions, it's reliance on these. In the lust of the flesh and sensuality, humanity functions according to the bodily desires. In the lust of the eyes, covetousness. Individuals seek to have more than others or to have illicit things. The boastful pride of life is the corruption of the noblest part of man's being, the self exaltation of his spirit. The spirit that God is made in God's image. In it, humanity defies God and arrogantly attempts to dethrone the sovereign of the universe. Now, there are two significant biblical passages where we see these three categories of temptation displayed. In the first one, find it in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, here's the, uh, the first temptation, the first sin, in the fall of the human race. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So Satan here approaches the woman, approaches Eve in the garden, and he says, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden. Questioning God. Notice the question is, is designed to start Eve on a path of distrusting God. He wants Eve to doubt the character of God. He wants Eve to disobey God. He wants Eve to believe that God is a liar and that God is restrictive needlessly. And he wants to restrict her freedom. He wants to put her in bondage. So he offers Eve the option of subjecting God's word to human judgment. As God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice that here Satan, in the way he poses the question, turns the positive into a negative. God had originally said, and we see it in chapter 2 in verses 16 to 17, says the Lord God commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So Satan turned it into a negative. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So that leads Eve to contemplate the fact that God is restrictive. Satan terms what was a provision with with only one small limitation into what is a restrictive general prohibition. He's implying that God is restricted, that God is narrow, that God hampers freedom. Does that implication sound familiar in our day and age? Do we not hear similar assertions from the world today? God restricts your fulfillment. God doesn't want you to have something that's good. He wants to limit your enjoyment. He wants to limit your pleasure. Now on the other hand Satan here is implying I'm devoted to your full fulfillment I can provide the freedom that you want So now Eve answers Satan answers Satan in verse 2 The woman said to the serpent From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die Now notice, as we read what God said just a moment ago, how she misquotes God. She added, touch it. She is now being lured into Satan's trap. She's being drawn in by his approach. She's being enticed by him. Remember last week we talked about James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, how the world and Satan set the bait. They set the trap. But each one is tempted when he is carried or dragged away and enticed by his own lust. By adding those words or touch it, she's adding restrictions to what God said. She's buying into the idea that God is restrictive, so she throws in a restriction of her own. Her heart is setting its course. Verse 4 The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. God said you'll die Satan says no you won't die and by saying that Satan is calling God a liar God is limiting your freedom he says he wants to keep you from enjoying the pleasures of that tree on top of that he didn't tell you the truth he lied to you then appealing to her mind Satan gives e a reason as to why God lied Verse 5 it says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it from your eyes, you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The reason he doesn't want you to eat is not because he loves you, it's not to protect you, not because you'll die, it's because if you eat of it, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. He wants to keep you oppressed. And now we'll begin to see the process of these three categories of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, how they are played out. Verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food. Notice, she saw the tree was good for food. The lust of the flesh, the bodily appetite, An inordinate desire. An inordinate desire because it was against God's will. The desire itself, not inordinate, but it was against God's will. It wasn't related to hunger. She had an abundance to eat from the garden. It was that there was some satisfaction of her desire being withheld from her. A desire that was not being fulfilled. A desire that was not fulfilled by Trusting God and trusting God's word. Key element here. She was trying to fulfill the desire outside of trusting in God and trusting in God's word. And then, verse 6, and then she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. The lust of the eyes, her visual appreciation of the beauty of the tree, was turned into covetousness by her desire. It was a beautiful tree, but now it was the object of her craving. Her eyes were the instruments to see and appreciate the beauty of the tree, but her own lust made that beauty the object of her covetous desire. And again in verse 6, she saw the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. She desired to have a wisdom beyond her own. She believed Satan's lie that she would be like God. She would probably be on a higher plane than she is now, not content to live under God's gracious and loving care. She desired to be exalted above her present state under the proud illusion of being like God. In verse 6, she took from his fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam accepted the same enticements without protest and ate the fruit. Ever gave him, and Satan's kingdom gained its initial fo- foothold on the earth. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and, and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James 1:14 and 15. There's another passage that presents these three categories of temptations by which the world gains entrance into the heart, but this time with a much different result. And this took place described in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And here is the Lord Jesus' temptation by the devil. Now these same three weapons were conquered by Christ. The second Adam and his temptation in the wilderness. The same three weapons used by Satan. Luke 1. I'm sorry, Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said you shall not put the Lord God, your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. In this account... Satan used a similar approach as he sought to derail Jesus' redemptive mission. He appealed to the Lord's humanity, his hunger for bread, his eyes, his appreciation of the world's splendor, and his perceived pride, his jumping from the temple's pinnacle, would have presumed on God's protection and gained an extra prestige when he landed safely. But all three of the devil's sinister approaches were unsus- unsuccessful as the Lord refuted each appeal by quoting from God's word, by quoting from the Old Testament truth. It's not surprising then that to see the wor- that the world under Satan's leadership continues to assault sinners through those same three pathways of temptation. See, the devil plays on the corruptibility of the fallen human heart to achieve the maximum impact for evil and chaos in the world. Now, as we look at this passage as believers who are in the world but not of the world, how do we obey the command? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And how do we keep ourselves from being polluted by all that is in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the bound? Boastful pride of life. See, here we face a great challenge, don't we? And it's a great challenge because even though we as believers have been justified, and even though we have been regenerated, even though we're a new creation and we have a new life and new affections and new longings and new desires, there is a residual unredeemed humanness still there. We haven't yet reached our glorification. Not until then will we be free from the sinful impulses that remain in our falling humanity. But God has a standard that has been set for us, set for us by God as to how we are to live as believers. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 say, states, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also, in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And even John, in the same epistle that we're looking at here, in the first epistle of John, in the same chapter, just a few verses back, in chapter 2 and verse 6, states, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And yet, we struggle against our residual flesh, to try to meet that standard. And our, on our own, we cannot meet that standard. If we are going to get anywhere near the standard that God has said, we are going to need help. If we want to please them, we are going to do the, th- and do the things he wills, as our Savior did. We have to have a power that's alien to, our, to us naturally But the good news is that we do have that power. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. We have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, the same passage where just a little while ago we looked at further down the passage describing the deeds of the flesh. But in verse 16 it states, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The only way that we overcome our fleshly desires is by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer? We walk in the Spirit. When we go, the path of the Spirit is moving on. And the path of the Spirit is moving on is the path of divine Revelation. It is the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. So that's why we read in Ephesians five eighteen, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and in the parallel passage in Colossians three sixteen, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you, be at home in you abundantly. So as the word of God dwells in you richly and begins to control your behavior. Under the power of the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you walk by the Spirit. It isn't something that you feel. It's not some extraneous great type of experience with some kind of physical feeling. It's the normal pattern of the Christian's life to desire to walk, to follow the walk of the Holy Spirit as he illuminates the understanding of Scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture to us and through Scripture continues to sanctify us. As you know the Word and as you are filled up with the Word, as the Word dominates your life, then the Spirit of God prompts you to move in the direction of what Scripture says. You have literally, literally fed your soul on the truths of the revelation of God to the point where you think biblically, which means then that you have the mind of Christ. And the Spirit of God leads you in the path of obedience to him. So this is what it means to live the Christian life. It is to walk by the Spirit. So the standard is high, and we still are fleshly. We have not yet received the redemption of the body. We still have our fallen flesh. And the challenge then is, how do we live an overcoming life? How do we live a triumphant life? How do we live a joy life? How do we not carry out the desires of the flesh? And the answer is simply stated in verse 16 in the command, but I, in Galatians 5:16 in the command, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That is a statement of fact in the believer. That is a promise of God in the believer. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word